Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio heard from a prominent local food critic, discussed homesteading with two young farmers, and learned about an award-winning Iranian film. All this plus the Trump Diaries, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for December 1st, 2017. Nancy Clem spoke with Ginger Brooks Takahashi and Dana Root Bishop, also known as General Sisters. General Sisters spoke about transforming their town one meal at a time, the power of plants and memory, and how sharing has helped create a stronger community. Spontaneous Vegetation with Nancy Clem airs the second Monday of every month at noon. Today I have the pleasurable opportunity to speak with General Sisters, Dana Bishop Root and Ginger Brooke Takahashi. So General Sisters was founded in 20, um, 2009 in North Braddock, Pennsylvania. General Sisters is the process of a general store located in North Braddock, Pennsylvania. Stocked with affordable food and ingredients, General Sisters makes eating, sharing, and gathering available to neighbors within walking distance. General Sisters turns routine transactions into possibilities for exchange that recognize the environmental and economic realities of its clients. General Sisters feeds the community literally and figuratively by confronting the racial and economic injustices evident in the food system and neighborhood and working actively to change them. I'm really, I again, I was completely impressed. Um, this is not a small uh, printing studio. This is quite large, um, and the ceramic studio is also pretty developed. So these are serious, seriously uh large studio places for people to um, take advantage of and um, use materials and and in a town that is um, kind of in the shadows of uh, a lot of um, broken histories it's it's really a bright point it's a very very lively engaged place um, so I guess you know part of the, your deepness is that um, is, is is you keep talking about intimacy and it comes up in a recent interview in, in Women in Performance as well in your writing. And um, it seems central to your guiding process, but inti- intimacy necessitates you having and cultivating some degree of porosity to others as well as your environment. What are some examples of how you practice um, or how you practically cultivate this vulnerability in your community? And how do you see this, um, this practice of intimacy resulting in resilience within the, your community? And maybe that's a leading, that kind of leads that question, but I do think there's something uh-huh. about uh, that practice that actually builds a deeper strength. Mm-hmm. Maybe talking about um, the garden, the, mm-hmm. the healing mm-hmm. garden. Do you want to talk about that? Where'd you go? Um, so uh, simultaneously to the roofing project, I guess maybe before the roofing started, so there's the building, the storefront building, it's a big rectangle, and then around that, there's an L-shaped lot that is on a slope. And that L-shaped lot is now all growing space for different kinds of plants. Um, and that was built by Dana and I 
and lots of other people um, in a terraced fashion, starting with these triangular-shaped beds, kind of one triangle at a time. And it was definitely, it was our vision from the beginning um, to create this healing garden and to grow specifically healing herbs, but it was reinforced by people gathering in the garden um, intentionally as a healing space. And early on, there was um, a, a shooting and a death in the neighborhood, and the family, the surviving family members and neighbors um, just intuitively gathered in the garden. The smell of the lavender. Right. <laughs> it was specifically around the smell of the lavender. I forgot that. Yeah. And that was the mother of the wow. young man would come by and say, it's the smell of the lavender that brings me here. Mm. And I think that was like so deeply affirming. Um, so I think that plants, mm-hmm. the garden itself, has been a space of intimacy. It creates a space of intimacy, especially as an outdoor space, because, you know, I think because we haven't had the inside of the building finished, mm-hmm. that's one thing. And I think the plants as a place of connection um, has been invaluable um, and has allowed vulnerability from both directions because we're connecting through something else or with something else. Mm-hmm. Um, I also think going back to the labor and the slowness of the process, mm. um, our neighbor is seeing that, you know, we don't have a huge investment dollar to make this happen. I mean, we've been working on this project now since 2009, as you said, and oftentimes the, what's visible is this kind of immediacy to development. Mm. The vulnerability for us of having to share a dream that we're not sure how we're going to make happen. I think it's scary to share a dream because you don't want to make a promise you can't keep. Um, But the space of dream is something that I feel like is really privileged. Um, Uh I've thought a lot about this where I don't think that we create spaces for each other to talk about dreams. You can tell I work with teens you can tell who feels like, you know, some people feel allowed to keep dreaming after the age of 12. Some people don't. Mm. Um, so I think this kind of the fact that it has existed as a dream has been um, incredibly vulnerable for everybody involved. Um, and then the other thing is I think sharing our collaborative relationship with our neighbors. Mm-hmm. have also created a lot of intimacy. Um, so how do you do that? I, <laughs> well, I, th- I think going back to plants is something I would like to say. Mm-hmm. We um, will spread out paper on a table, and we will bring plants to the table and invite our neighbors in formally and informally and create pathways of knowledge around what we know about plants. And so I think that this is a really incredible practice, and I think it's something that we can all do in different ways, um, where it's not, it also changes kind of who our ideas of the expert are. And I think this goes back to something you said earlier, Nancy, about the construction process. Like, it's clear that we didn't know what we were doing, but that we were doing it and learning. And I do think that positioning yourself as someone who's learning 
mm-hmm. creates a kind of openness and welcome, mm-hmm. as opposed to positioning yourself as someone who's the expert or the teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, and so let's say we put an herb in the middle of the table, a plant, um, lemon verbena, and then together as a group, we bring to it what we know. So that might be how it smells, what it looks like, what it references, what memory does it pull up? Do you, have you had this flavor in your mouth before? You know, like, and it becomes a collective knowledge building. That mm. I think is a way, it's a, it's a deep intimacy. It's a way towards intimacy. Hitting Left spoke with Fritz Kagey, candidate for county assessor, about Chicago politics, the unfairness of the property tax system, and progressive values. Hitting Left with the Klonsky Brothers airs every Friday at 11 a.m. You know, I've been writing uh, writing a lot about uh, the research and statistics, the use of, of statistics or the misuse of them around the public schools here. We had two guests on our show uh, last week, Fritz, who were uh, school researchers uh, from uh, my alma mater over there at UIC, and uh, we were we were talking about this study uh, that came out of Stanford, which is I think your alma mater, right? For, or one for of business them. school. That's where I went to. Business yeah, school. yeah. And these Stanford researchers uh, did a study and claimed that Chicago public schools now were number one in the nation in terms of test score growth and learning growth. And uh, so last week we kind of debunked all that. Uh, uh, all that stuff, but what interested me, you know, and, and well, we were talking about the misuse of statistics. Oh my goodness! You know how uh, you when you focus on, on test scores uh, and draw conclusions that are that are much bigger than the data allows for, uh, and you and you conflate test scores with learning, then you come up with stuff like that, and the mayor and. Uh, CEO Claypool, are, you know, we're dancing around about this this tremendous growth rate. We we were pointing out that uh, it may have, if if in fact the data is true that test scores have grown, uh, it may have something more to do with demographic changes in the city. Absolutely, yeah. Or, so because uh, it, the the proper verb to use in this situation is weaponize. The test scores have been weaponized, and what it leads to is. Uh, instead of uh, focusing on like-for-like improvement of students across all levels, instead you drive out the population, you drive out the denominator, you, you increase turnover, and then that's how you can get test scores. Through. Well, Funny yeah. you should say about, about if you got a problem with test scores, change the students, right? I mean, yeah. that's the... That and we're, like gerrymandering. We, well, not only that, but if you're if you're just talking about growth and using percentages, you know, without getting into crazy mathematics, well, here... You're an, you're an, an old baseball player, right, Fritz? Mm-hmm. Um, you, you played ball over at Kenwood High School and uh, in college. Uh huh. In a moonlight Graham appearance in college, by the way. <laughs> moonlight, uh, moonlight appearance. For well, one year for all a couple at bats. My <laughs> early appearances in college were mo- uh, moonlighting too. Uh-huh. Um, but to get back to my, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Here, here, here was my analogy that I use. Mm-hmm. You got a you got a hitter who strikes out his first eight times at bat. 
Then in one game, he gets two hits. Now, in that one game, his batting average went from zero, zero, zero to 200 <laughs> in just a, a matter of an hour or so. Right. <laughs> now, you could say, well, his, his growth rate, his, his rate of uh, his improvement was faster than any other player in the league. Right, right, right. right. But uh, the next day, he was sent down to the minor leagues to work on his batting stroke. Mm-hmm. I know, Fred. You don't want to talk about baseball. No, no, no. You see, the good thing about following uh, baseball... I find this fascinating. ...is that you can see statistics misused in sports all the time like that, and if you were exposed to it, it, uh, you start to become attuned to the misuse of statistics in many other areas like education Ah. and business and So here, you know, I I won't dwell on this too much longer. I'm not going to talk about baseball anymore, but uh, yesterday... our illustrious uh, police superintendent, uh, Johnson, came out and, and uh, reported that uh, shootings in Englewood, in the Englewood neighborhood on Chicago South Side, has gone down 10%, and, uh, which is great. I mean, I, I hope, I hope to, to God that he's right, you know. And, um, and, and I'm sure, you know, he probably is right. It probably has gone down 10%. But then I was looking at the population changes in Englewood. Yeah. You know, uh, a community that has lost uh, a tremendous amount of, of people, especially uh, African-American people. Well, oh, my That's goodness. who lives there, yeah. Like so, the rest of the city. <laughs> yeah. Partly like, driven by the assessment process, I might add. Ah, well, uh, we hope you get yeah. into that. But if the population... Uh, goes down from a high of like ninety seven thousand down to like twenty eight thousand. Right, isn't that going to drive the percentage of you know of shootings down? Yeah, right. Just not, like it drives test scores up. Right. Not to mention that I'm sure he was selective to find the time period that was most favorable to the argument that he was making. Okay, so there's still too much, uh, too much. Uh, uh, Violence. Junk Crime. math, too much, and too much gun violence. And too much yeah. gun violence, and uh, too many guns. Uh, Chief Johnson credited the department's use of nerve centers in Inglewood for the decline. I tend to think that that that, that uh, the police's the, the police department's nerve centers in Inglewood <laughs> weren't really the, the responsible for the decline. But anyway, I'll let it go at that. Okay, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, okay, before we get get to uh, Fritz. Oh, I have my sports. I have my sports question. Fritz is already with us, man. I, I mean, know, I know, but but he wants to talk about his campaign against uh, Joe Barrios, and so do I. Actually, I wanted when, <laughs> when we get to it, I, I, I want to know why we actually vote. Oh, see, for, you're getting into it now, Fred. For uh, tax assessors and recorders of deeds and metropolitan water district board members, we don't get to vote for our board of education, but we get to vote for what one don't are not offices that exist. In other metropolitan, but uh, that's for later. I have my sports. Oh, question. you just that teased us. I know. I'm right. Make a note yeah. of that, Fritz. Take that down. Make a note of that. Uh, uh, okay, but here's the sports question. Both of you uh, can. Uh, so, Bobby Doerr, a famous second, uh, fa- a Hall of Fame second Boston baseman Red Sox. for the Boston Red Sox back in the days when. Uh, they didn't allow players of color into the major leagues. Died this week at the age of 99. Uh, he was the oldest living uh, Hall of Famer. And, th- and that's chewing tobacco every day. <laughs> <laughs> and so, and I'm interested in these things. And this is the kind of sports mm-hmm. thing I'm interested in because I'm interested in people living to 99. Mm-hmm. And since I'm approaching. <laughs> Play a lot of baseball, Fred, and chew tobacco. So who is now uh, the oldest living Hall of Famer. Wow. Oh, Hall of Famer. Yeah. 
Uh, let's see. So he played for the St. Louis Cardinals most of his career. Stan Musial. No. Bob Gibson. Well, he's no. Not Stan Musial. No. No, he, he would have. He's ninety four. Let me put it down. Uh, I don't know. Dizzy Dean. No, <laughs> Dizzy Dean's dead. dead. <laughs> Lou Brock. Red Shane Deans. I was just going to say Red Shane. You were. I was. Then you would have been right. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty good. The guys. great Red Shandies. Uh, <laughs> I was going to say Wee Willie Keeler. <laughs> but he's probably been dead for 50 years. Okay, uh-huh. so now what's your art question? Well, my art question is uh, how much does it cost to, uh, to, uh, to buy a painting of... Uh, Leonardo da Vinci? Of Leonardo da Vinci's, yeah. Of dubious um, provenance. Or how does it compare with what uh, 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 Giancarlo Stanton's going to make <laughs> <laughs> after he signs his new contract somewhere this year? It's all money laundering. That, yeah. that, that much is clear. I, I read that it was some Russian... Uh, what does it say about <laughs> art in our capitalist society, Fred? Uh, that it's a commodity uh, that has no intrinsic value other than what the price somebody is willing to pay for it. How's that? Is and that? How, how does that affect your art? <laughs> I know, I, Fred, Fred, for those who don't know, I am a, a, I'm a, a practicing artist, which you can find on fredklonsky.com all the time, and it's free. It but, is not a commodity. But in a couple hundred years, those cartoons may go for it, Well, it's money. not done on archival paper, so whether... Whether that uh, that uh, whether paper it's available or, or whether in a couple I, hundred years paper will be obsolete. or whether I care. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you all right. need to get to the point where you why don't you why don't you introduce drawings. our guest? Oh, you mean who's I been talking get, all this time? Anyway. You mean I don't get to go to the other eight things? Well, we're not, well, not going to talk about Roy Moore. <laughs> Sports spoke to Ali Riza Katami about his first feature film, Oblivion Versus. It premiered at the Venice Biennial, and it took home a Golden Lion for screenwriting. Katami spoke with Brian and Dana on filming Beyond Plot, making a movie in a language you don't speak, and everything you need to know about cemeteries. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Uh, welcome to Bad at Sports Center. Uh, this is your host, Brian Andrews, here on WLPN LP Chicago 105.5 FM. You're listening to Lumpin' Radio. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Dana Bassett. Hi. Uh, and today it's a uh, kind of dreary, drippy, but uh, not too cold fall morning down in beautiful Bridgeport, Chicago. Uh, and we are joined by uh, Iranian and now Chicagoan filmmaker Ali Riza Katami. Welcome to Bad at Sports Center, Ali. Uh, and his mic wasn't on, so <laughs> I got to put that back up. Welcome to to Bad at Sports, uh, Bad at Sports Center. So um, your most recent, your first feature film uh, is kind of in the process. Oblivion versus is in the process of making its festival run. It had a, a super amazing opening at uh, the Venice Biennale, where you took home a Golden Lion for screenwriting. Uh, it was recently here in Chicago at the Chicago International Film Festival, Toronto, many others, um, uh, which is truly amazing. But let's just kind of. Uh, outside of the the run, which we can talk about later, um, let's talk about the film itself. What is Oblivion versus? Where did it come from? Why did you want to make this film? Well, you are uh, you're asking three, four questions in one go. Oh, let's start. Well, like, uh, well, let, how about how about you what is the film? Choose, you just choose the question or, you want to answer, well, and then let us Brian the will just at, keep going. Okay, yeah, let us into the film. What is Oblivion versus? 
Well, Oblivion Versus is a magical odyssey of a 70-year-old man who has an exceptional odyssey, uh, exceptional memory that recalls uh, every details of the past, but no names. He cannot even remember his own names. And after the militia break down to a morgue that he's taking care of it, to hide corpses of civilians shot dead during a demonstration, uh, he decides to bury a corpse that is left behind. Uh, and in order to do that, there is a lot of bureaucratic process that he has to bypass. Um, that's more or less a very basic plot of the film. But it's, uh, it's a film that escapes plots. It's n not very um, plot-driven. Uh, <laughs> I love that as an as a advertisement for your film. I, not very plot driven. It is not. If if they if you are expecting to have ninety minutes of excitement sitting through the film, that's not going to happen. You know, this is a film to watch and uh, question your own memory. It is a film to watch and question your own responsibilities toward those who loved and no longer are among us. So you're not going to watch Inception. You know, this <laughs> yeah. is not that kind of movie. No, no yes. explosions, no robotic uh, no, sharks. No, no explosions, no... Uh, but uh, yes, there are uh, exceptional visuals there. There is a whale flying. There is an archive that eats people. Um, I saw that there are There are protagonists who come back from the dead several times. There are... Um, Wind that distributes paper around the city. There are there are quite a lot of uh, things happening, but not in the very, I would say, Hollywood tradition of storytelling. So, without that plot, what? Um, Where are you pulling your images from? Where do they come from? Well, they come from many different sources. You know, um, of course, I'm I'm Iranian, and I grew up within the. Iranian tradition of uh, literature and cinema. So that has been a big influence on me. I also have traveled the world for the past 10, 15 years. Uh, I'm very familiar with the Southeast Asian traditions uh, in storytelling. And uh, films like Cemetery of Splendor, for example, is a great inspiration for me. And um, uh, Indian cinema, uh, like Pater Panchali is a great inspiration. Also Greek cinema with masters like uh, Theoglopoulos and the films like uh, Landscape in the Mist or Ulysses Gaze. Um, this has been uh, a great uh, source of uh, material for me to draw upon. Uh, so it has been, it's funny because uh, some people watched it in, watched the film in, uh, Taiwan and called it this is a story that Theo Plus would have told and then somebody in Toronto wrote a review that this is a movie that Kiarostami would make if he was on ex uh, ecstasy you know it's like, <laughs> all right clearly like, you're not I'm a not big sorry, fan of ecstasy <laughs> it was like no no it was called acid Kiarostami and acid that's what they said actually um, so it, there is a lot of material from different sources and I read somewhere that when you're making your first feature film, it's okay 
to pay your homage to the people who have influenced you. And I think I, think I did my homage to the people who taught me cinema. So then, you know, in a film that's not about plot, what experience are you wanting to give to your audience members? What are you wanting them to go through or take away from the film? Can I answer that one? Yes, please. Only because I feel like you you said that you want us to reflect on our, the way our memory works, which I think is like a very compelling idea. Um, is that what you want us to do? I mean, partially, basically. <laughs> I, I, I asked you a different like, question. I know the answer. <laughs> I think uh, it's a weird question that uh, people ask from filmmakers, in my opinion. You don't ask a painter, what's the story? What's the story? We ask yes, that we, all we, the time. I was going to say, <laughs> we put everyone through the same rigmarole of boring questions that you don't want to answer. But oh, then you thanks. give us yes. beautiful, you know, but for example, seductive when you're responses. To, when you're listening to music, you're not looking for story. You're not, you're not, you're looking for an experience. Right. You know, you're listening and you, uh, Partly shut your brain off, let your heart take over, and immerse yourself in that moment. Uh, this is what I'm looking for. You know, you're gonna sit 92 minutes in cinema and uh, let yourself go with the images, with the sounds, with the characters to feel something, to experience something. Not necessarily to have a clear plot in a very biblical sense to learn a lesson. And then, okay, I learned my lesson, let's go home. That's not exactly what I'm trying to do. Um, unfortunately, this is uh, something that uh, we have learned from Hollywood. You know, this, this, they are training us to be very... Uh, Spectacle-driven. <laughs> very uh, story-driven, you know, that story should have a beginning, should have a middle, should have an end. Right. You know, the every answer. Rigorous three-act structure. Yeah. And every question must have an answer. In life, that's not the case. I don't think Hollywood taught us that. I think patriarchy taught us that. But, uh, true. I mean, you I, know, I agree they're, they're pretty that. pretty in bed with each other. Yeah, yeah. no. Well, but Hollywood <laughs> is just like a subset of patriarchy. I'm ready. I'm ready for the tea. You ready for the tea? <laughs> the teas of the gospel. We'll get we'll get to the tea. I'm sure we got. We'll, we'll make time for some. I'm just good, yeah. Good it's load like of tea. gonna it's gonna be bubbling up all day. Excellent. Okay. Um, but but there is but Hollywood does have that specific fetishization of story and and yes, and story instruction how that comes through absolutely yeah and this is something that uh, other parts of the world have tried to experiment with and come up with different ways of uh, telling the movie you know uh, making a film it's uh, it's not all about the character it's not all about it's all. It's about the visuals. It's about the images. It's about the sound. It's about the time. You know, uh, Love Diaz is a filmmaker from Philippines who makes four hours movies without much of a story in there. It's gonna be a, a very difficult experience for somebody who have only watched uh, Hollywood films. By the way, I completely distinguish between Hollywood film. And American films, you know, because we have fantastic films made in the United States who are taking this medium to uncharted territories, but they are not coming from studio systems in Hollywood.
This week on The Trump Diaries. Even the holidays can't keep Trump off Twitter. Kushner becomes a target. What is Trump's problem with African Americans anyway? Michael Flynn flips, and it is make or break for the GOP tax bill. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 308, November 23rd. The Hill reports that economic advisor Gary Cohn faked a bad connection to get off a phone call with Trump during a discussion with Democratic senators about tax reform earlier this month. The White House economic advisor wanted to have a conversation on tax reform without Trump. Trump called in anyway, and after 15 minutes, Senator Tom Carper reportedly turned to Cohn and said, quote, We're not going to have a real conversation here. Can't you just tell the president that he is brilliant and say we're losing the connection and then hang up? And Cohn did. That news follows report that H.R. McMaster called Trump a dope with the mind of a kindergartner last week. And Donald Trump Jr. posted a batch of private messages he exchanged with WikiLeaks during last year's campaign. Trump Jr. wrote, quote, more nothing burgers from the media and others desperately trying to create a false narrative. Keep coming at me, guys. The Post confirmed published reports that he communicated with the site that had published stolen Democratic emails obtained by Russian military intelligence. And the Wall Street Journal reports that Robert Mueller's investigators are asking questions about Jared Kushner's interactions with foreign leaders during the transition period. In addition, the New York Times reports that Kushner's portfolio has shrunk and has become apparent that he's a prime target of the Mueller investigation. And in response to reporters' queries, Trump and the White House insisted that Trump was working from Mar-a-Lago in the run-up to Thanksgiving and very busy, an hour before he went golfing. The White House in its daily briefing said Trump, quote, will not have a low-key day and has a full schedule of meetings and phone calls. Soon after, Trump tweeted that he will, quote, will be having meetings and working the phones from the Winter White House in Florida. An hour later, Trump left Mar-a-Lago to spend the morning at Trump International Golf Club in West Palm Beach. The Post reports that since his inauguration, Trump has spent 98 days at his private properties, one out of every 3.1 days, and played golf approximately 60 times, or one every 5.1 days. Trump memorably criticized former President Barack Obama for playing golf during his presidency. Day 309, November 24th. Michael Flynn is apparently cooperating with Robert Mueller in his investigation into possible collusion with the Russian government during the 2016 election season, notifying Trump's legal team that he can no longer share information with them. Flynn and his son are seen as having significant legal risks in the Mueller investigation and have reportedly been told they will be indicted unless they cooperate. The move is an ominous one for Team Trump. Flynn was a high-ranking White House official. And New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman is investigating what he calls a massive scheme to corrupt the FCC with fake public comments on net neutrality. Schneiderman said in a tweet his office is investigating a, quote, massive scheme over the last six months to, quote, corrupt the FCC's comment process on net neutrality by impersonating hundreds of thousands of real Americans. Schneiderman also said in an open letter to FCC Chairman Ajit Pai that the agency hasn't provided with information critical to an investigation his office is conducting. Pai is trying to roll back net neutrality rules. And Trump claimed that Time Magazine had approached him about making him their person of the year. Time Magazine called to say that I was probably going to be named man person of the year like last year, but I would have to agree to an interview and a major photo shoot, Trump wrote on Twitter. I said probably is no good and took a pass. Thanks anyway. Time Magazine issued an unusual response saying, quote, the president is incorrect about how we choose person of the year. Time does not comment on our choice until publication, which is December 6th. Another tweet from an editor at the magazine said Trump's claim was, quote, devoid of facts. Day 310, November 25th. 
Trump again tweeted angrily about LeVar Ball, the father of a UCLA basketball player who, along with two others, was released by China after getting arrested for shoplifting. Tweeted Trump, quote, it wasn't the White House, it wasn't the State Department, it wasn't Father LeVar's so-called people on the ground in China that got his son out of a long-term prison sentence. It was me. Too bad. LeVar is just a poor man's version of Don King, but without the hair. Just think, LeVar, you could have spent the next five to ten years during Thanksgiving with your son in China, but no NBA contract to support you. But remember, LeVar, shoplifting is not a little thing. It's really a big deal, especially in China. Ungrateful fool. LeVar responded that he was going to send Trump some sneakers so he would, quote, calm down a little bit. Trump also continues feud with the NFL minutes later, tweeting, quote, Can you believe that the disrespect for our country, our flag, our anthem continues without penalty to the players? The commissioner has lost control of the hemorrhaging league. Players are the boss. Trump also responded bizarrely to a tweet from the Post's Plumline blog, which earlier in the week had noted Trump's pattern of attacking prominent African-American athletes. The article said Trump's attacks were, quote, gratuitously ugly and suggested that Trump thinks black athletes are, quote, getting above their station or that they're asking for too much and are insufficiently thankful for all that has been done for them. In response, Trump tweeted to the Plumline, quote, make America great again. Day 311, November 26th. John Conyers has stepped down as a ranking member of the House Judiciary Committee amid an investigation into sexual harassment and workplace abuse allegations by his former staffers. Conyers said in a statement he denies the allegations, adding, quote, many of which were raised by documents reportedly paid for by a partisan alt-right blogger. That blogger was Mike Cernovich. Trump doubled down in his criticism of the Democratic nominee for a vacant Senate seat, Doug Jones, and reiterated his support for Roy Moore, who has been accused of molesting a 14-year-old girl and preying on at least eight other teenage women. Quote, the last thing we need in Alabama and the Senate is a Schumer-Pelosi puppet who is weak on crime, weak on the border, bad for our military and our great vets, bad for our Second Amendment, and wants to raise his taxes to the sky, SIC. That was a tweet Sunday morning. Liberal Jones would be bad, he tweeted less than an hour later. Trump also fumed at his daughter Ivanka Trump's criticism of Moore. Trump had said it in an interview when asked about Moore, quote, there is a special place in hell for people who prey on children. Trump reportedly said, quote, do you believe this? Do you believe this? To several of his aides. Day 312, November 27th. Leander English, the deputy director of the Consumer Protection Bureau, who was set to become its temporary chief, fought a lawsuit late Sunday night to block Trump's choice of Mick Mulvaney from taking control of the agency on Monday. Mulvaney has been openly hostile to the Consumer Bureau, calling it a sad, sick joke and supporting legislation to eliminate it. The case is likely to slow the changeover in the role. Both English and Mulvaney showed up to assume the role of director on Monday. A judge has expressed skepticism about whether Trump can actually appoint Mulvaney and whether English can continue in her role. And the Congressional Budget Office reports that the Senate Republican tax plan essentially gives massive breaks to the wealthy while hurting the middle class and poor gravely, even worse than had previously been reported. The CBO said the bill would add $1.4 trillion to the deficit over the next decade, but that people making under $75,000 a year would be hit especially hard as health care costs would rise steeply as a result of the Senate tax plan. Trump continues attack on CNN Monday containing... Trump continues attack on CNN Monday, tweeting, quote, we should have a contest as to which of the networks plus CNN and not including Fox is the most dishonest, corrupt and or distorted in its political coverage of your favorite president, me. They're all bad. Winner to receive the fake news trophy. It is unclear whether Trump was speaking tongue in cheek. 
Trump used an ethnic slur for Native Americans at an event at the White House. Monday, Trump welcomed three of the 13 surviving veterans of the Code Talker program to an event honoring their service. Peter McDonald, a former chairman of the Navajo Nation, gave a speech describing his and his friend's service and the losses their unit suffered. The Washington Post reported that Trump then took the microphone and said, quote, that was so incredible, and now I don't have to make my speech. I had the most beautiful speech written out. I was so proud of it. Trump closed his speech and handed the binder to McDonald. I know you like me, so I know you'll save it. Then, Trump, speaking off the cuff, made a reference to Senator Elizabeth Warren. Quote, you were here long before any of us were here, although we have a representative in Congress who they say was here a long time ago. They call her Pocahontas. But you know what? I like you. The audience was quiet. And the Washington Post says it uncovered an apparent right-wing sting attempt masterminded by James O'Keefe. The paper reported that a woman approached them with false claims that Republican Alabama Senate candidate Roy Moore impregnated her when she was a teenager and then paid for an abortion. Post reporters found inconsistencies in her stories, then witnessed her entering the premises of O'Keefe's Project Veritas. They also found a GoFundMe campaign under her name that said the person had, quote, accepted a job to work in the conservative media movement to combat the lies and deceit, spelled incorrectly, of the liberal MSM. Day 313, November 28th. Trump's tweeting cost him a meeting with top Democratic leaders today. An early morning post from Trump read, quote, meeting with Chuck and Nancy today, referring to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, about keeping government open and working. Problem is they want illegal immigrants flooding into our country unchecked, are weak on crime, and want to substantially raise taxes. I don't see a deal. Following that post, Schumer and Pelosi announced they were pulling out of the meeting, quote, rather than going to the White House for a show meeting that won't result in an agreement. Pelosi and Schumer have instead scheduled a meeting with McConnell and Ryan. Privately, Republican aides are fuming at Trump's tweet as they know Republicans do not have the votes to avoid a December 8th shutdown. Sarah Huckabee Sanders perhaps didn't help matters when she said Pelosi and Schumer were being petty. And Time Magazine has been sold in an all-cash deal to Meredith, a Midwestern publisher. The deal raised eyebrows as the purchase was financed partly with a $650 million injection from the Koch brothers. The Kochs claim they are silent partners in the venture, but Meredith is reportedly planning on immediately spinning off some Time assets. At a testy employee meeting on Monday, the Kochs' involvement was hotly debated. The Kochs have a history of attempting to influence coverage of them, going so far as to hire a private investigator to tail a journalist in an attempt to bully her into silence. And the former head of the Ethics Department said that White House aide Kellyanne Conway violated the Hatch Act when she told Alabama voters not to support Democratic Senate candidate Doug Jones. Walter Schaub made the case in a Washington Post op-ed and also filed a complaint with the U.S. Office of Special Counsel. Conway has been accused of violating her position before, most notably when she urged Fox News watchers to buy items from Ivanka Trump's clothing line. Day 314th, November 29th. A federal judge has decided to leave White House Budget Director Mick Mulvaney in place as acting director of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Leander English, the CFPB's deputy director, had requested an emergency restraining order to stop Mulvaney from taking over. U.S. District Judge Timothy Kelly has declined that request, saying in a ruling, quote, denying the president's authority to appoint Mr. Mulvaney raises significant constitutional questions. And the New York Times reports that Trump paid $1.4 million to settle a class action labor case in 1998. Trump apparently employed a crew of 200 undocumented Polish workers who worked in 12-hour shifts and were paid $4 an hour to demolish the Bonwit Teller building on Fifth Avenue to make way for Trump Tower. That order had been previously sealed until an FOIA request was filed. 
and a Swiss maker of hamburger buns from McDonald's said it was struggling to run a Chicago bakery after it lost a third of its workers in an immigration raid. 800 immigrants without sufficient documentation, or 35% of their workforce, had to be replaced at Cloverhill. The company says the employees were supplied by a job placement agency that had faced federal audits earlier this year. North Korea fired an ICBM early Wednesday for the first time in four months, defying Trump's warnings. Trump's reaction to the launch was more muted than in the past. He told reporters in Washington, quote, we will take care of it. It is a situation we will handle. The North Korean missile appeared to travel a significantly greater distance than that of the two previous ICBMs. And the Senate Budget Committee voted along party lines 12 to 11 to approve the GOP tax legislation, clearing the way for a full Senate vote later this week. Republicans appear united in repealing the Obamacare mandate as well, a move that could have a catastrophic effect on health insurance in the United States. As Republicans move the bill to the floor, more amendments are being offered to explicitly help the ultra-wealthy. One, dealing with what are known as pass-through entities, would directly help the Trump family. Trump is also suggesting tonight that the Access Hollywood tape is fake, despite apologizing for what he described as locker room talk between men in October 2016. Access Hollywood responded to Trump saying, quote, the tape is very real. And Democrats lead Republicans by 10.7% on the generic congressional ballot, according to the Real Clear Politics average of available polling data. That marks the highest that average has gone since just before the 2010 elections, where Republicans netted 63 House seats. These are the Trump Diaries. Radio Free chatted with critic Mike Sula. Sula, a judge in this year's Get Slice competition, discussed nationwide food trends, new restaurants, and what diners can expect in the new year. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday drive time at 4 p.m. Hey, this is John Daly. You're listening to Radio Free Bridgeport on WLPN, LP Chicago, 105.5 FM. You're listening to Lumpin' Radio, and we were just talking to Mike Sula about food trends around the city and things that are happening in the country. Mike and we're a little, little curious about how you started in, as, as a food critic and in journalism. Well, I actually like to hear about some more trends that maybe are going on in the city, if that's okay with you, John. Yeah, it's fine with me, Mike, <laughs> can you please reveal to us another trend in the city of Chicago? Yes, I will. Um, uh, there's no you know, kind of quick, catchy name at it, but except, other than uh, you know, people call it vegetable forward, um, where you're seeing a lot of like – you know, the snout the tail ethos where, you know, every everything is, you know, every 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 piece of the animal is being eaten in the restaurant, just um, much less protein heavy. You still have these aren't vegetarian restaurants, but you're getting restaurants that are building entrees or larger plates around vegetables. There's probably some, you know, might be some animal protein, in it, like some cheese or some, you know, pancetta or something like that. But um, really creative and innovative ways with vegetables. And that's not just in Chicago. That's all over the country. There was a stretch over the spring and early summer where I reviewed, you know, four places that were doing that, like all sort of within the same time period. So that's the thing. Is that, that eat your vegetables? Is that, that restaurant in New York, Dirt Candy, right? Is that kind mm-hmm. of where that all started from and fled over? Uh, I wouldn't say that. I don't know. I mean, it's definitely something that came from the coasts. Uh, probably, probably LA more than anywhere else. Gotcha. But uh, yeah. Do you think that restaurateurs are just looking for new opportunities, new themes, and that's why they just embrace these kind of trends? What, why is this all? Why does this happen? Like, how did five to ten people decide we're doing vegetable forward this week, or opening up a brand new restaurant or changing our menu? How does that happen? Well, I mean, it's very often someone does it first and it's successful and they want to a- ape it in a way. But, I mean, there's a creative element to it, too. I mean, um, I mean, it, you know, we were operating in this extremely carnivorous environment in, in the restaurant industry for a long time and people just get tired of it, you know. Meat is, is expensive also. Like, uh, you know, the food cost for restaurants pursuing this kind of 
this kind of mo- model is a, a lot lower. Especially, and if people are if people are really into it, then um, that's good for them. So uh, it's a lot of things. I think a lot. I, you know, chefs are challenged to cook that way too to make vegetables interesting. I mean, vegetables. You know, vegetables get a bad rap for everybody from childhood on. So uh, you know, it's sort of a way to redeem that to sort of people coming over to a healthier way of eating. It's probably going to convince me to start eating vegetables again. <laughs> when it comes with a little pancetta, a little butter, some cheese on there. Yeah, I can do it now. That's the way to do it. Yeah. You might have to recommend to me privately your favorite uh, veggie restaurants to go to. Sure. So now I'll, I'll give you a couple. Thank you. But it would, you know, it would be great to know, you know how you got involved in this business. I mean, it's nuts. We live in a world now where there's multiple uh, TV channels and networks dedicated to food. Publications like Lucky Peach became like fetishized food guides for human people or for people all over. Um, the restaurant scene in Chicago has exploded in the past 15 years. It's just mind-blowing, the diversity of foods that you can get from all over the world in this city. And you were there. You yeah. were watching this happen. What happened? Well, I was, you know, I, I started The Reader 25 years ago as an editorial assistant. And uh, um, I freelanced quite a bit Um you know, I had tried as hard to get my name in the paper as possible. I was doing every kind of story imaginable, um, you know, little weekly events, large profiles of people. I was just getting around the city. Um, at the time, we had a dedicated restaurant writer. Couldn't really call her a restaurant critic, but she was writing a short column every week about about sort of, um, let's call them like the restaurant openings with big budgets, places that had publicists and stuff like that, places downtown. She wasn't really getting out into the neighborhood, into the little mom and pop places, places that are cooking to their own specific ethnic group. Uh, and so we had this restaurant database. Um, we were doing short capsule reviews of hundreds of restaurants in the city. She was kind of neglecting uh, those kind of restaurants. So I saw that as an opportunity to get out and around the city, get paid to eat and write about it and find stories. It was a great way to find stories. You know, every immigrant restaurant owner has a story. Um, so that's how it happened. I eventually made a uh, staff writer and I was just, uh, you know, I was at large. I had no deadline. I had no uh, space limit. I was just, you know, the best job in journalism. Uh, but then things started to contract, like, you know, everything in the uh, newspaper industry started uh, getting smaller. People were getting laid off. As this was happening, as you said, Chicago's national profile started growing. The powers that be saw this as, you know, an opportunity to... Um, open an area of coverage that people were really interested in. So um, I was made the full-time food writer for The Reader. Our previous writer had uh, left. Um, the space was open. They laid a bunch of people off, and I, <laughs> I, uh, I stayed on. It's weird. And has it been a rewarding thing for you to do? I mean, writing about foods, a, it's always a strange thing. You know what I mean? Because it's a, it's a very um, one-on-one engagement that you're having with something. But it's also obviously a very difficult thing to cover because there's a lot of egos, there's a lot of money involved, you get a lot of critical pushback. I mean, any any criticism is like that, but I would think food, because there's so much more involved than, say, covering music and local bands, you know, there's there's million-dollar budgets in a restaurant. There's generally not a million-dollar band in covering, you know, the, the local bands around town, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think that the stakes are a lot higher. Has that been something that's affected you or has been pressure on you? Well, it's kind of, I mean, it, in a lot of ways, it's a limitless uh, beat. I mean, there's always something to write about. Uh you know, at, at the same time, and it's a super interesting industry. I mean, if you look at some of the national restaurant stories that are uh, 
you know, hitting the news right now. The, you know, John Besh in New Orleans um, is the restaurant industry's poster child for the sexual har- harassment uh, um, coverage that's been happening on his restaurant group is was destroyed by by uh, the uh, newspaper article that came out in New Orleans. So there's a lot to write about. Um, it's just like any any beat politics, art, music. It's it's limitless. At the same time, you know, I, I, I turn in a column every week. I do a, re- a restaurant re- review based on several anonymous visits. You know, restaurants open every single week in Chicago, but, so n- not every one of them is going to be great. Not every one of them is going to be terrible. Those are the two fun ones to write about. Most restaurants that open, sadly, are mediocre. So wow. it, can, it can be a bit of a slog. So we're getting lucky when we're reading about these restaurants. We're typically getting the cream of the crop of openings. Not for me. No, I write them about, about them all. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah, we try to. Uh, you know, I try to prioritize the, you know, the most interesting and important openings from you know week week to week. So e, that might mean some place that turns out to be completely average and not fun to write about or well, eat at. What's been something that was a surprise to you lately? Well, you know, the place I did this week, I can't really say the name yet, was a big surprise. Let me think of uh, good or bad. Good. It's okay. a good surprise. The place that did the the, the beef and the pizza puff and the oh, I got you. Talking about trends again, uh, pasta is is huge. Everybody's doing pasta, and I've I've been getting really sick of it. But a place opened this summer that um, totally blew me away. Uh, called it's in Logan Square, of course, um, Fulton Market District in Logan Square is where I work most these <laughs> days. Um, it's a place called Daisy's uh, near the near the Milwaukee. Um, has the intersection. Uh, this guy is doing half of a vegetable forward menu and half house-made pastas. And he's doing really interesting pastas with, you know, this is something I thought would just was not going to work because um, I'm kind of like, I'm a little bit like of an Italian food purist. I think things should be a certain way. Uh, this guy is doing pastas with Midwestern ingredients with, um, you know, sort of recalling kind of like classic Midwestern flavor, flavor profiles and things like that, and he's he's doing a great job. His vegetable dishes are good too. Daisies. All right, I got to ask you one thing: How come it's hard to get good ramen in this city? I think it used to be. I don't think it is anymore. Okay, I tell think, me, tell me where because I'm I'm struggling to get good ramen, and I relocated back here from LA, and it's the one only thing about LA I miss. I would have to say. Yeah, uh, for a long time, the only ramen worth eating was in the uh, in Matsuo Food Court in the Arlington Heights Sentoka, mm-hmm. which is a Japanese chain. Right. Um, I I feel like the best ramen in Chicago are in fact Japanese chains, like the, mm-hmm. um, you know that. Sentuka was kind of upended by this Japanese chain called Misoya Ramen, uh, which has a branch downtown now, but another one out in the suburbs, do, su- suburbs doing um, kind of mis- various miso-based ramen. That place is fantastic. Um, a bunch of other places have opened that that are, are doing really well. Uh, the people that own op- uh, had wasabi ramen opened a place specializing in chicken python ramen. Everybody's doing different styles, and it's just it's getting a lot more interesting. You know, since the internet came along and eviscerated the, the 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 regular print media, a lot of different startups happened. Like Yelp, everyone's a reviewer and a critic. You had um, these different websites like uh, oh gosh, the Eater series all over the place, right? Are there any media projects that we should be aware of that you've been involved in or getting involved in that are complementary to this kind of diet of uh, online food stuff? 
I, uh, I I got involved in two magazine startups this year, which is which is I mean, who starts a magazine anymore? But yeah. um, two really interesting magazine startups. One's called Dill, uh, which is solely focused on Asian food, and it was launched Whoa. by uh, um, launched by a college student who brought in all this talent. And um, the first issue is just on noodles. I did a story about this Kyrgyz place on the north side. Um, that does hand pulled noodles, you know, in a, in a really nice, rich lamb stew called uh, Lagman. So that was the first issue. The second issue, they sent me to Bangkok. So I I spent ten days in Bangkok last month um, re researching. Uh, research. I, I can't really say what it was, but it's a it's a dish that is s- central to Thai cuisine that nobody knows about in the West. So uh, that's coming out in the spring. Uh, really interesting magazine. That whole next issue is going to be. I, I can't say. Is it a say. perfect bound publication for color on newsstands? Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's not on newsstands. You, gotta, you have to order it. You got to order it. Okay, yeah. great. That's good to know. Mm-hmm. What's the other magazine? The other one is the the first nationally distributed food magazine devoted devoted to uh, culinary cannabis, and it's called Kitchen Toke. No way. Yes, yes, Kitchen Toke. Uh, that's um, that was started by a group here in Chicago called Bite Bite Me Media that I've done some freelance work for over the years. So I I um, helped edit that, put it out. It came out last month. It's our Thanksgiving issue. So there's a uh, there's a whole feature devoted to uh, you know you know getting along with your relatives a lot better through the power of cannabis. Uh, edible cannabis. Edible cannabis, yeah, for sure. That, that strikes me as a trend, uh, actually, edible cannabis. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's it's uh, it's definitely, I don't know what, I don't remember what the numbers are, but it's like this exploding industry. Um, it's going to get bigger here in Illinois soon. Uh, you know, it's just something that's sort of exploding. Chefs, are, chefs all across the country are getting into it. No, chefs are creating edibles yeah. for to consume on premise. Yes, yes. At restaurant. their restaurants. Yes. That Not, is incredible. Yeah, we we have a great chef here in Chicago named Ileana Reagan, who has two probably two of the most interesting restaurants in Chicago called uh, Kitsune and Elizabeth. Um, she's launching a line of edibles, and and uh, I that's that was a feature I wrote for the right. magazine. Didn't Mindy's Mindy's hot chocolate? Mindy's are out. You can get yeah. those if you have a medical marijuana card. You yeah. can buy those at your favorite dispensary. Yeah. Kitsune is fantastic, by the way. Yeah, I love it. And now you get Kitsune edibles. <laughs> well, you can't get Kitsune edibles, but you you will be able to soon. Yes. Why, it, why, why, why are we all saying it's going to happen soon in Illinois? You guys know well, we had, I don't know? We had a gubernatorial candidate on the show, Ed, who said it, that he was fully in favor of recreational Is that who we're going to be backing then? Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't think, know there's, I think, think there's more but than But I one. think Cook County has also come out and said it's, it's, I mean, what, two weeks ago they came out and said, I think the votes are there to legalize it in Cook County. There's I, a critical mass of states that have decriminalized. The governor isn't there yet, though. No. Well, but I mean, Cook County, that's, that's fine. The governor may not be in office after 2018, this particular governor. But that's neither here nor there. I think there is a critical mass opening up, partly because of the tax basis. And, of course, if the current Senate tax bill passes, states are going to get hit even harder. There's not many things you can left to tax, and cannabis is a growth industry that is there to tax. So I think it's going to be obviously pretty soon a financial necessity and a financial reality, you know, whether whether we like it or not. The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpin' theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpin' Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpin' Radio, visit lumpinradio.com. 
Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Thank you.